Well, thank you, Pastor Steve, very, very much. Uh, Jody and I feel like we have just been uh, treated like royalty here. I mean, just so kind, so gracious, and uh, have loved this time with you. So, so glad to see uh, how the Lord is at work here in your church and in this community. It is thrilling. Uh, we know this is not the easiest soil, uh, if, you know, to, to plant a church and to have it grow here in uh, the Northeast, but look at what God is doing. It's wonderful. And uh, our friendship with Steve and Linda goes way back, and we are so glad to renew that friendship with them and, and see firsthand what's going on. So, we're, uh, we're delighted. We'll go home with full hearts and, uh, and more um, fervent praying also for all of you. Well, this morning we are going to uh, kind of pick up on one of the themes that we talked about at the conference, and that is the sovereignty of God over all things good and bad, and that includes over suffering that happens. And one of the uh, most vivid biblical examples that we could look at for that is Job's own experience in the book of Job that we have in the Bible, just before the Psalms, if you are not quite sure where that is. Um, and uh, I, I want to think with you about some of the lessons we can learn from the story of Job uh, that, that we can apply to our own lives about what, when we face suffering. And I just want to tell you this, I'm so glad the book of Job is in the Bible. I mean, for many reasons, but one of them is that it allows us to have kind of the behind the curtain view of what's going on. Now, Job himself is in front of the curtain, you know. He really doesn't have the uh, the the uh, perspective that we're given in the early chapters of Job to understand what's going on. He just faces it, and it was really difficult, as we'll see. Uh, but we have the advantage of knowing what's going on behind and the purposes that God has in this, the outcome that will come as a result of it. I mean, that all is given to us, and it's just so helpful, so helpful to be able to look through this and see lessons that we can learn about suffering uh, from the story of Job. So to begin with, I want us to get a feel for the story itself. Obviously, we cannot read the whole book of Job, but I do want to read parts of it uh, that will help us enter into the story, and I'll kind of summarize what we skip. So to begin with, the, the longest portion that I'm going to read to you is Job chapters 1 and 2. So if you want to turn in your own Bibles and follow along, I'll be reading from the New American Standard translation. Uh, listen to the story of Job as it begins for us in Job chapters 1 and 2. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. Seven sons and three daughters were born to him. His possessions also were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. And that man was the greatest of all the men of the east. His sons used to go out and hold a feast at the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When the days of feasting had completed the cycle, Job would send and consecrate them, rising up early in the morning and offering burnt offerings according to the number of them all. And Job said, perhaps my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. 
Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, from roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord, does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But put forth your hand now and touch all that he has. He will surely curse you to your face. Then the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not put forth your hand on him. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. Now on the day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans attacked and took them. They also slew the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another came also and said, The Chaldeans formed three bands and made a raid on the camels and took them and slew the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another came also and said, Your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell on the young people, and they died. And I alone am, have escaped to tell you. Then Job rose, tore his robe, and shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and worshipped. He said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord has given, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. Chapter 2, again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? And Satan answered and said to the Lord, from roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. And he still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to ruin him without cause. Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin. Yes, all that a man has, he will give for his life. However, put forth your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. So the Lord said to Satan, 
Behold, he is in your power. Only spare his life. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a potsherd to scrape himself while he was sitting among the ashes. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Now when Job's three friends heard of all this adversity that had come upon him, they came each one from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite, and they made an appointment and together to come to him, to sympathize with him, and to comfort him. And when they lifted up their eyes at a distance and did not recognize him, they raised their voices and wept. And each of them tore his robe, and they threw dust over their heads toward the sky. Then they sat down on the ground with Job for seven days and seven nights, with no one speaking a word to him. For they saw that his pain was very great. Now, at this point in the book of Job, it begins a whole series of dialogue that takes place between Job and these three friends. And the basic thrust, as you read through the book of Job, is that the three friends have one main theme. Of course, they commiserate with him. They express their sorrow for how much pain he is enduring. But the one thing they want Job to get is this. The reason this suffering is happening to you is because you have sinned against God. So confess your sin, repent of your sin, and God will lift this suffering from you. Job, in response to this, has a uniform message back to his friends. I have not sinned in a way that would bring this upon me. This suffering is for some other reason. It is not because I stand before God as deserving this kind of judgment. And Job comes close in his insistence on his own rightness before God. He comes close to charging God with wrongdoing. I don't think he ever crosses that line, but boy, does he come close. And so as you read through the book, this constant refrain from the friends, you've sinned against God, admit it, and Job refusing to, to accept that. That's what you have through the whole of the book until you come to the end where God now confronts Job. So turn with me, if you would, to chapter 38. Job chapter 38, where we see the first instance of God coming to Job and helping him begin to understand uh, how he should think about this. So in Job chapter 38, let's look at verses 1 to 7. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel? by words without knowledge? Now gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you, and you instruct me. 
Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who set its measurements since you know? Or stretched out, who stretched out the line on it? On what were its bases sunk? And who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Now, this begins, of course, God going through the whole chapter, expressing all the ways in which He has accomplished things in the universe and on planet Earth and done things that Job has no idea how they could have been done. And so what God does by stating to Job, do you understand? Have you were, were you there? Were you able to do this? Is humbles Job to realize how foolish he is to think that he can know the ways of God. And this humbling worked. So when we pick up God's comments to him again in chapter 40, we see that indeed Job has been humbled. So, in chapter 40, verses 1 to to, uh, 9, we read this. Then the Lord said to Job, Will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? Let him who reproves God answer it. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I I, I am insignificant. What can I reply to you? I lay my hand on my mouth. Once I have spoken, and I will not answer. Even twice I will add nothing more. Then the Lord answered Job out of the storm, and he said, Now gird up your loins like a man. I will ask you, and you instruct me. Will you really annul my judgment? Will you condemn me that you may be justified? Or do you have an arm like God, and can you thunder with a voice like His? Now, one of the surprises to me when you read this story is though it is clear Job has been humbled by what God has said, in verse 4, behold, I am insignificant. What can I reply? I lay my hand on my mouth. But evidently, God knows that Job's humbling has not been completed. There is more to happen. I think this is instructive. Some of us go through discipline of the Lord, and we are humbled by it, and we think, that should be it. (laughs) Well, no, more is needed. And this is exactly what God does to Job. So instead of lightening up and saying, Job, so glad you've learned your lesson, instead he hits him again. And he goes through another litany of different elements of the created order, uh, including many of the things in the the depths of the seas. And he comments on these things and says, Job, do you understand how the Leviathan is able to to run his course? And do you understand how, how the sea creatures can be who they are and what they do. And of course, none of these things Job knows at all. So he is humbled again. So now chapter 42 is where we see God's final statement to Job, and the book is concluded. So let's read chapter 42. Follow along, if you would, please. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have declared that which I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear now, and I will speak, 
and I will ask you, and you instruct me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I retract, and I repent in dust and ashes. It came about after the Lord had spoken these words to Job that the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My wrath is kindled against you and against your two friends, because you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now therefore, take for yourselves seven bulls, seven rams, and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves, and my servant Job will pray for you. For I accept him so that I may not do with you according to your folly, because you have not spoken to me what is right, as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Namathite went and did as the Lord told them, and the Lord accepted Job. The Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friends, and the Lord increased all that Job had twofold. Then all of his brothers and all of his sisters who had known him before came to him, and they ate bread with him in his house, and they consoled him and comforted him for all of the adversities that the Lord had brought upon Job. And each one gave him a piece of money and each a ring of gold. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than the, his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep and 6,000 camels and 1,000 yoke of oxen, 1,000 female donkeys. He had seven sons and three daughters. He named the first Jemimah, the second Keziah, and the third Karenhapuk. In all the land, no women were found so fair as Job's daughters." And their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. After this, Job lived 140 years. He saw his sons and his grandsons, four generations, and Job died an old man and full of days. Well, it's an amazing story, isn't it? It's gripping, and it is filled with pathos, but it is also filled with lessons that we can learn about suffering that are so important for us today. So if you would look with me, I hope you have an outline you can follow along, six lessons of, on affliction from the story of Job. The first one is this. It is very clear from the account in uh, Job chapters 1 and 2 that indeed Satan is the immediate cause of this affliction. Satan is the immediate cause of this affliction. Certainly, this is clear in the story of Job. Satan is the one who brings the Sabaeans, the fire, the wind. I mean, when you think of the things in chapter 1 that Satan evidently can have control over, right? Moving bands of people against his servants and killing their cattle and their sheep and so on and killing the servants, bringing this strong wind that would blow the house down, that would kill the children of Job. My goodness, Satan has incredible power, and it was unleashed against his, his own uh, property, uh, his, his cattle, his sheep, and his children. So indeed, Satan is the one who brings the Sabaeans, the fire, the wind, against Job's possession and children. And then in chapter 2, Satan is the one who brings these boils to Job's body. So again, he has that ability, uh -huh, 
when God permits, more on that in a moment, to, to bring tremendous harm to people and control forces of nature and move the hearts of people to do things that are an abomination. Satan has that power. But notice it's not just in the book of Job, but this is also the case in relation to Satan's control of much of the world. He is, think of some passages in the New Testament, he is the God of this world. 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, do you remember? And what he does as the God of this world, he blinds the minds of the unbelieving that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Every unbeliever is blinded by Satan so they can't see Christ rightly. They don't see the glory of Christ. Why can they not see it? Why, why do they hear the gospel and consider it foolishness? Because Satan is blinding their eyes. They cannot understand until God removes the blindness, awakens a dead heart. But Satan has them in his control. He's referred to in Ephesians 2.3 as the prince of the power of the air. I mean, if that isn't a chilling description, how pervasive is air? Huh. I think that's everywhere. Everywhere we go. He's the prince of the power of the air. Everywhere you go, his influence, his harm, his endeavor to destroy, to pervert, is present. Yeah, 1 John 5.19 reads, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Now, you got to remember, these are passages in the New Testament that are stated after Christ has died and been raised and ascends to the right hand of the Father, having triumphed over Satan, right? And yet God permits Satan to continue this incredible destructive work in, in the, uh, among the human race and throughout all of the earth. And here's one more statement that just is chilling. It's in 2 Timothy 2.26. Uh, Paul there is encouraging Timothy to be patient with those who oppose him, that God may bring them to repentance. They may, snake, may escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive to him to do his will. This is unbelievers, friends. If you ever wonder why this culture is so quickly moving in a direction that is so hostile to God in his ways. Well, Satan has a whole bunch of slaves out there, a whole bunch of people that he controls. Every unbeliever is under the control of Satan and can do what he wills to do as long as God permits. More on that in just a moment. So Satan clearly is the immediate cause of all of the affliction that comes on Job. Here's the second principle, though. God is the ultimate cause of this affliction. God is the ultimate cause. So if you're looking for who's really responsible here, Satan is morally culpable for what he did. More on that in a bit. He, he did it, and he is held responsible before God. But nonetheless, God is the one who gives the final say-so. He is the one who has the ultimate decision of whether Job is afflicted and how much he is afflicted. So indeed, let's take a look at some of the indicators in the story of Job that God is indeed the ultimate 
cause of the affliction of Job. First, notice God brought up the subject of Job's godly life to Satan, anticipating, no doubt, how Satan would respond to that. Or do you think God is that, that you know, naive, that he wouldn't have any idea of what Satan would reply when he says, have you considered my servant Job, this, this godly man, and is, is always doing what is right? Oh, really, Satan? You, you, you think I should let you do something to him? Surprising God? Are you kidding? He knows what Satan's response is going to be. And if you don't believe that in chapter 1, surely you should by chapter 2. Right? Where, he bring, where God brings up Job again. Have you considered my servant Job? He says it again in chapter 2. So indeed, God does that for the purpose of eliciting from Satan exactly what he says so that the affliction will come upon Job, designed by God, ultimately. Secondly, God established both whether Job would be afflicted by Satan and the extent to which he would be afflicted. Right? So, Satan says, you know... Do, do this damage to Job and he will curse you to your face. God is the one who says then, you may have control over his possessions, but don't touch him in chapter 1. In chapter 2, he will curse you to your face. You may touch his body, but don't take his life. God is the one who establishes whether Satan can do what he wants to do and the extent to which he does it. God does that. I mean, aren't you so glad to know that Satan is, as it were, on a leash, right? I, I think this is how I think of Satan. It's just a very vivid image in my own mind. When we lived in Portland, Oregon, uh, I was teaching at Western Seminary there, and uh, I had a particular running route that I would jog in the morning, and it took me past this one, one corner. I just was, you know, every morning this happened, or almost every morning it happened. You know, I turned the, turn the corner at this one place. It was a chain link fence around the yard, and there was a doghouse over here with a pit bull inside the doghouse. And he didn't see me until I had rounded the corner. But as soon as I rounded the corner, you know, he gets all fiery and he charges out of that doghouse. And just as I'm passing the chain link fence right there, his head, bam, right against the fence. I mean, there's a dent in the fence where this dog's head had hit against it so many times. And I just think, you know what? This is Satan. <laughs> Not hard to figure that one, right? <laughs> this is Satan, and this is God, who puts the fence there and says, nope, no, you can't do what you want to do this time. Not, not on that. But other times, the gate opens, right? So th this is God who is in control. Satan always wants to destroy, always wants to harm, always wants to bring down. I mean, if he could do everything he wanted to do, we wouldn't be here. But he can't, because God is the one who says whether he can do something and to what extent. Oh, my goodness, what hope there is in that. God is the ultimate controller of all this that takes place. Third, God declares, this is another indicator that God is the ultimate cause. God declares that he, God, acted against Job. Isn't that interesting? But Satan is the one who did it. 
But then you come in chapter 2 and he says in verse 3, he, he still holds his fast, his integrity, although you incited me against him to ruin him without cause. So God takes responsibility at that point for what had taken place with Job. All, all of the destruction that took place to his, his animals and to his own children. So indeed, God doesn't shy away from taking responsibility. He owns it. Number four, Job's first response indicates that God has taken away what he has lost. Those amazing words, the Lord has given. Yeah, now that part we don't have a problem with, right? Every good and perfect gift is from above, from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. James 1.17, yeah, we get that. The Lord has given. The Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And the, the, the amazing thing about this is that the narrator of the book of Job concurs, agrees with Job's assessment that the Lord has taken away. How do we know that? Because of the last verse of chapter 1. Right after Job says, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I will return. The Lord has given, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Then we read this. Through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. So what he said by attributing to God the horror that had just taken place in chapter 1 was not a sin because it was true. The Lord has given, the Lord has taken away. He's in control of both sides of it. Number four, or five, I'm sorry. Job's second response indicates that God has brought this adversity to his own life. So, you know, I, I, you know th this is not going to be a wife joke. I hate wife jokes because I love my wife. So this is not a wife joke. This, this is just a fact. Uh, when Satan took all of Job's family, his children. He left his wife. And I think there was a purpose for that, and we see it in chapter 2. Satan knew she would be useful, evidently, right? So she comes to him in chapter 2 and says to him, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. Yeah, think wonderful, encouraging words from your wife, right? So, yes, she is right on Satan's side on this. But Job responds in verse 10, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity implied from God? So, indeed, this adversity is from God. Job states it again. And by the way, for those of you here who are here over the weekend conference, guess what word that is, adversity? Raw, this word that is used so often in the Old Testament for everything that is horrid. Indeed, the Lord has brought this adversity. And notice, in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. So what he said to her was true. The narrator wants you to know, because you're probably wondering, reading this, is he right about that? I mean, really, could it be that God is the one who brought this adversity on him? Really? Are you sure? So the narrator wants to make clear, yes, what Job said was right. Number six, in 
Job, in God's responses to Job, God does not deny responsibility or defend himself to Job saying something like, Job, why, why are you pointing your finger toward me? I had nothing to do with your suffering, so don't hold me responsible. I mean, God could have said that, right? But he doesn't. Instead, what does he do? He says, Job, how do you think you, as a mere mortal human being, can even begin to understand my <coughs> infinite mind, the ways that I have designed? You need to understand your place, Job. I'm God. You are not. I understand so much more than you ever can. Humble yourself before me. And then finally, number seven, this is the clincher. I mean, you could, you could have just one item on the list, and here it is. It's the last comment of the, the author of the book of Job, the one who narrates the story of why this affliction has come upon Job. You remember in chapter 42, all his, his relatives come and, and, uh, and commiserate with him for, for all, the, all of the affliction that the Lord had brought upon Job. No mention of Satan. Satan isn't even in the picture there. All the affliction the Lord had brought upon Job. So indeed, this is the, this is the book of Job's own assessment, its own understanding, is that God is the ultimate cause of the affliction that has taken place. Okay, moving along. Number three, because Satan, a morally evil creature, brought about this devastation and does so from only a motive to do harm, it truly is evil. I think this is such an important thing for Christian people to understand because in light of the next point, which I'm going to say that God is in control for good, you might think that evil then is a good. It is not it is not. There will be no evil in heaven. There was no evil in the original creation. God looked at all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Evil is horrible. God will judge it. He despises it. He will hold people accountable for all of the evil they do unless they are forgiven through Christ. So indeed, e evil is really horrible. So if you have this, you know, something horrible has happened to you, so some evil action by another person, and you feel this kind of oh, rage within you for how evil that is, that is appropriate to feel that. But it's not appropriate to stay there. We'll talk about this more. But indeed, we should recognize evil as evil. The Joseph story is helpful, right? The brothers sold Joseph to Egypt. What's the comment at the end of the book of Genesis? You meant it for evil. Indeed, they did. No question. But then number four, God ultimately controls the affliction. So it is specifically permitted for good. That is, God intended it for good. Again, Genesis 50-20, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. So indeed, you know this because God is good. There is no evil in God. Therefore, we recognize that anything that he does in this world by which he permits willingly, knowingly, in full control, permits evil to take place, it is always for good purposes that he has. Now, don't read that to mean necessarily for good of the person who commits the evil. That person may end up 
being judged by God in the end and, and being cast into hell, right? But are there good purposes accomplished? Yes, indeed. So indeed, indeed, when we think of God being ultimately in control of affliction and evil that takes place, Isaiah 45.7 is a verse that just summarizes that. It, it states that God is the one who creates light and, or for, forms light and creates darkness, who causes well-being and creates calamity. Do you hear both sides of the spectrum there? I am the Lord who does all these things. But remember, yes, God is the one who forms light and creates darkness, but He is light, 1 John 1, 5, and there is no darkness in Him. How important it is to affirm that. And God is the one who causes well-being and creates calamity, but God does, does not participate in any kind of wickedness, and there is no evil in Him, Psalm 5, 4. So how important it is to see that. Well, so when we cannot comprehend the good and wise purposes of God, they're beyond our, our ability to see. Here are some things. I'm just going to tick them off for you and, and just to hope they register with you as important things. Here are some things we should not do when we face affliction. Number one, we should not curse God for the evil that occurs in our life. Remember Job? Curse God and die, his wife says to him. And what does Job say? Shall we not accept good from the Lord and, and, not accept, and, and, and not accept adversity as well? So indeed, he would not curse God. You should not blame God as if God is morally guilty in regard to the affliction and the suffering over which he exerts complete control. I find this statement really significant in chapter 1, again, verse 22. Notice that the, the narrator not only says... When Job has just said, the Lord is given, the Lord is taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. He not only says, through all this, Job did not sin. What else does he say? Nor did he blame God. Listen up. This is really important. There's a distinction here between God as the one who is causally responsible for evil that takes place, ultimately so, but never morally culpable right? Never morally guilty. So this is very difficult for us, don't, isn't it? Because we think if he's, if he's causally responsible, he ought to be morally culpable. But look here, the Lord took away, and all this Job did not, uh, did not sin, nor did he blame God. So indeed, he's not morally culpable because what he's doing through this is bringing about good. The one who carried out the evil is the one who is morally culpable. Indeed. Doubt. We should not doubt God's perfect wisdom, his mighty power, or his abiding love. Now, the reason I mention those three in particular, wisdom, power, and love, is because those three are absolutely essential to trust in if we are going to put faith in God in the midst of our suffering. We have to know that His wisdom has designed what is best. That includes this cancer. That includes the, this car accident. I mean, all these things that happen, God's wisdom has designed what is best. His power could have prevented it, but His power allowed that to happen, and His power is there available to help you in your need now. And His love, huh. He loves you and wants only your best. And hence, this affliction serves your best 
interest, your growth, your Christ-likeness, your becoming more of what God calls you to be. Do not neglect. Do, we should not neglect God due to confusion or frustration in the midst of our affliction. If there's ever a time you need to seek Him, it's during that time. Don't turn away from Him. And then absolve. We should not absolve God from ultimate causal responsibility for all that happens in the world, including all affliction, devastation, calamity, and evil. Indeed, God is the one who ultimately is in control of it all. Okay, then what are ways we should respond when we encounter the affliction that comes into our lives? Praise, just like Job did. He bowed down and worshiped. And he said, naked I have come from my mother's womb and so on. So here is an example from Job to worship the Lord in the midst of our suffering. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.18 says to uh, accept trials as from the Lord in the midst of them. And Ephesians 5.20 says to thank God for them. So we thank God in them and we thank God for them. Two different prepositions in those two verses. Secondly, we should accept the adversity God brings upon our lives and into the world. We must be humble before Him in the face of that affliction. So again, Job's response to his wife. Shall we accept good from God and not accept adversity? Third, we should examine our hearts to consider whether it might be the case that our own sin has brought this affliction as divine discipline. If so, we should repent. If not, examine what lessons the Lord has for you through the affliction. It's not wrong to ask the question, you know, given this affliction that has come, is this due to some sin in my life that the Lord wants to to make me aware of? So, Job's friends were not wrong to raise the issue of, Job, have you sinned? Where they were wrong is to insist that's the only reason there can be for this affliction that has come to you, is because you have sinned and you won't admit it. <laughs> so indeed, but we should, we should pray uh, about that. And then fourth, pray and enlist. We should pray earnestly, seeking God's merciful deliverance out of affliction but if God's answer is no, we should enlist the lasting afflictions of our lives for the good and wise purposes God has in and through and not apart from those afflictions. So you think of Paul in 2 Corinthians 12 praying three times for the thorn in the flesh to be removed. Three times indicates, number one, persistent praying. He goes back and again and again. It also indicates, secondly, accepting no as the answer. Huh. And so Paul learns his grace is sufficient for me. His power is made known in my weakness. Therefore, I will revel in the afflictions God brings, this thorn in the flesh. So indeed, pray, but then enlist. Relieve. We should seek to relieve the suffering of others. Job's friends' instincts were right to come and comfort their, brother, their, their, their friend Job. The problem is how they did it. Not the best, but they were right to want to do that. Forgive. When wrong, we should forgive those who sinned against us. I think this is one of the most pathos-rich parts of the entire story. You can pass over and not notice it. The only, the only way God would forgive the three friends of Job was if Job prayed for them. If Job prayed for them. So indeed, Job, you got to let it go. 
I know you're angry at them. I, I know you're bitter because they, they, you know, falsely accused you. But listen, you've got to forgive them. Pray for them. And he did. <laughs> so forgive other people. And trust, we should entrust to God the certain judgment and justice that he will bring about. Be like Jesus, who while suffering uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. We should remember that Christ has endured the greatest affliction possible. All the sin, guilt, pain, suffering of the world, and even more, God's full wrath against him for our sin. Look to him who understands the depth of suffering. Go to Jesus. Hope. We should hope and rejoice. Christ has conquered all sin and evil in our lives and in the whole of the created order. We wait a day free from tears, sadness, pain, suffering, life filled with endless joy and glad satisfaction in all that God has for us in Christ. But just a reminder, it's only for those who are in Christ. Are you in Christ this morning? Have you put your faith in Christ? Oh my, do you see how critical that is? Your only hope to enter into life at its best is through Christ. So glorify God. We should value the magnification of the glory of God above all else, including above the well-being, health, happiness of his creatures. So in conclusion, and Pastor Steve mentioned this earlier, it's so important. I'm glad to have it stated several times. Here it is. There's a line in a song that says, when you can't trace his hand, trust his heart. Isn't that beautiful? You don't understand why he's doing what he's doing. Trust his heart. Know God in the good days so that you will have strength of soul and conviction to withstand the challenges of difficult days. So grow in knowing the greatness of God's character. Put your complete hope and trust in his wise and sovereign ways. Know God is for you as a believer. And that includes every moment of affliction in your lives. Trust him. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this time to look at this very in, engrossing story of Job. And we thank you for the lessons we have learned from it. We pray that you, you, by your Spirit, would bring these home to us in ways that would help us in days ahead. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.